Hamlin of Fentelberg for Business. President Cyril Ramaphosa delivered the State of the Nation address before a joint sitting of the two Houses of Parliament. This was the last sonar of the Sixth Administration. Mr. Raposa described the five years of his presidency as one of recovery, rebuilding and renewal. And addressing the issue uppermost in the minds of South Africans, he said the worst of load shedding is behind us. There was no announcement of an election date. To delve into the implication of Mr. Ramaphosa's Sona speech, we have University of Johannesburg political analyst Professor Theo Fenter with us. Hi, Theo. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I think the most notable thing was that, first of all, was that Mr. Ramaphosa could actually speak. There was no disruption from the EFF. Yeah, uh, and earlier in the week, there was the fear that um, with his flu, his voice wouldn't be there. Even if the EFF isn't there, his voice would be gone. But luckily, none of the things happened. And I think, personally, we, we became so used to the disruption by the EFF ever since uh, President Zuma's and Kandla affair, up to the Pala Pala issue, that when there was no disruption at this sonar, the sonar was actually disappointing. Um, I think what happened in the past, we were so happy that after an hour's disruption and all these kind of things, we could eventually hear what the president is saying. This time around, there was no such um, chaos. And uh, focus on Sona 1. I'm calling it Sona 1. Actually, if we want to use the American metaphor, we can call it Sona 1.0 and 2.0. 2.0 will be the State of the Nation address after the election. This is the State of the Nation address for the election. And I think that's the context in which the Sona took place. It was um, a mixed bag. I haven't done the counting, but I will do it later on. I think the use of the term apartheid and the reference to apartheid was fairly um, uh, numerous. And I think that is the game he played in his sona. 30 years ago, we had this. Now we've got that. 30 years ago, we had this. Now we've got that. And then he he, he created this fictional tinswalu and, and what happened to her over the last 30 years, which is interesting. But um, I don't think it's convincing. Well, the other thing that was missing is the election date. Yes. Um, yeah, we learned yesterday, I think, that the election day will be announced in two weeks' time. And the reason for that being certain technicalities in terms of legislation, which Parliament still has to sort out before they can announce the election. Although uh, Pierre de Foss, a very well-known constitutional lawyer, uh, and professor in, in constitutional law said that there's no need for that. Um, you can have the election in terms of the constitution. So I'm not exactly sure what the reason for the two-week um, uh, extension is. Some would argue that it would have been the only news of this uh, sonar. And by not adding the election day or date, um, people had to listen to what we expected. I mean, we expected something about Palestine. We expected something about the Ukraine. We expected some of the announcements. We expected that he will utilize uh, the opportunity to talk to state capture, which, in my view, he did to the detriment of Jacob Zuma. Um, 
uh, I could clearly read between the lines that um, he's now referring to the 10 years that we've lost. Now, if I take you back to Davos um, six or seven years ago, uh, Senator Ramaphosa said that Zuma is responsible for the nine lost years. When he returned to South Africa, he got a hiding in the NEC and he had to withdraw. He never used the term nine lost years until tonight, for the first time, ten lost years featured. And that is definitely him talking to Zuma. Talking about corruption, he's, um, he sort of claimed that they're taking care of corruption, but in his front row are some of his, his own MPs that are you know, stand accused of corruption. What, what do you think of that? Well, well, that is why people are saying that the legitimacy with which um, he is talking and he's speaking um, is his biggest enemy because not only is it the fact that um, very important members of the top six, uh, Paul Mashitile, uh, Gwede Mantash, one of his uh, very trusted ministers, Zizi Kodwa, they all mentioned in, in, the, in, the, in the report by, by Judge Zondo, and then, of course, his own Paula Paula Albatross hanging, in, hanging around his neck. So I think um, he tried to provide a picture of 200 people in process of prosecution, this amount of money that has been, this amount of money that have been claimed in civil proceedings. If we get 10% of the money that he claimed this evening, it would be a lot because most of the money we're talking about was taken by the Guptas and their cohorts. And I think that money is gone forever. He said also the worst of load shedding is over. I mean, is that achievable and believable or is it real election speak? No, I think that's election speak. Um, we know that load shedding is a long-term solution. Uh, well, I would say medium to long-term solution. It's not a short-term solution. And I think um, he providing a little bit of insight on, let's say, the um, amount of money being spent on transmission. That is, that is so. That is part of the business. The amount of energy generated by by solar rooftops that is genuine, um, but uh, the amount that we are looking for and the reliability of ESCO that is the biggest challenge. As we speak, we have got load shedding again. So it is um, it is something that um, the politicians would love to say before the election we've solved it. But you know, there's a there's a hidden cost to to this debate, this political speak. And the hidden cost is something that I will be involved in tomorrow. We're discussing the Northwest province and where it is going in a in a Lechotla type conference or a summit. And one of the issues mm -hmm. is the financial instability and the financial unsustainability of local government in this province. And I would dare to say in 90% of local governments in the country. Because what has happened is people in the middle class and upper middle class and so on, they all went for rooftops. They all went for alternative solutions to ESCOM. Now, these people I'm talking about, black and white, it's no Indian, it's, there's no color distinction. It's a, it's a cost distinction. 
they are not, they were previously um, the reliable payers of their services to local governments. That is now gone. So local governments, local governments had, um, in terms of the electricity cost uh, that they paid ESCOM, they put between 40 and 60% markup. You won't believe it, but that's the markup local governments placed on electricity, uh, uh, reselling it to the homeowner. That's gone now. Um, and that is basically um, more than half of most of the revenue created by local governments. In his speech, he referred to, to local governments. I looked at the speech later on and I saw it was a paragraph. Local government needs three pages. It doesn't need a paragraph. And what he's claiming, we're going to discuss tomorrow, is the DDM, the District Development Model. I haven't seen it working. He's praising it. He's saying it works. Well, I will tomorrow discuss the inability of the DDM to function in a place called Lichtenberg in the, in the northwest, uh, also known as the Ditzelbotla municipality, where the DDM is a complete failure. Let me explain to you why. In the, in the district where Lichtenberg is situated, all the municipalities are failing. So now the argument with the district development model is you bring together collectively all the resources you have in the district, and then from there on you build a, a kind of collective solution. Well, if they're all failing, what do you bring to the table? You bring failure to the table. You don't bring solutions to the table. That one, to me, is, uh, is one of the most far-fetched um, arguments he had in his sonar. Well, he also talked about the national health insurance and said the legislation is on his desk, he's about to sign it, he's looking for a pen. What do we make of that? Is he going to implement? Is he, is he going through with it? Well, I, I think there's a lot of pressure on him not to sign. That's why he's looking for a pen, because he doesn't want one. Because the, 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 the cost of introducing the national health insurance in South Africa, uh, if you compare what the challenges are in Great Britain, for instance, one of the, of the, of the first countries to implement a comprehensive national insurance system, then um, uh, you can see why people in the knowledge are just shaking their heads. Where are we going with this? And then he went on, when he discussed that, to tell the story about people not wanting to go to private medical facilities they would prefer to yeah. be in state facilities. Well, I can give him 10 stories of exactly the opposite. So that's one of the, 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 the stories that I uh, feel um, the typical South African sitting in a makuku. A makuku, of course, is one of these um, huts made of corrugated iron. And, and if you sit in the northwest, your western wall faces the setting sun. I can't imagine how hot it must be. Now, hearing the president talking this, I, I, I just think they, they were. You, you know, sometimes politicians make this huge mistake. They think they can discuss issues, they can explain issues, while people at ground level, at the grassroots level, they know when it is not true. They intuitively have a feeling 
this is not working. And you don't have to convince them because they experience it every day. Well, uh, one of the opposition leaders actually said that the reality that Mr. Ramaphosa set out in Sona is totally different to what people experience on the ground. So is that what the election is going to be about? That's just what the ANC is, that says they've done over 30 years. And he talks about in five years what he's done and the difficulties he had to get things done. Do you think that voters would, would see through it? Well, there's, there's a second bite on this apple. And this is in two weeks' time. Because what I heard when you were speaking about the value of social grants and the COVID grant, and there was some news speak in his sentence that indicated to me this grant is going to become a permanent fixture. It's not yeah. temporary anymore. And then mm. between the lines, I also read, we are moving towards a, a general income grant um, and, and, uh, or a basic income grant. Um, which is a consolidation of all the grants um, and, and getting more people. For that, we have to wait for the budget. I think he indicated that he's thinking in that direction. I think that is probably what the budget mm. is going to, to provide us with, and that is an election ploy, because there's nothing that you can do in terms of the limited financial uh, maneuverability we've got in terms of a huge debt, the cost of debt, um, the lack of revenue, the fact that our railway lines aren't working, that our harbors aren't working, at least he referred to that, kind of indicated some solutions to it. But that is um, breaking down the revenue stream. Um, so um, converting a current grant into a, a basic income grant is sounding well, but it is utilizing the same amount of money just dishing it out differently. When he said it was his last speech of the sixth administration, the opposition was signaling um, the same as footballers do when they want a replacement. Um, and he also referred to Mandela's long road to freedom, you know, the title of Madiba's biography, and said the road was not over. Was he referring to himself? Do you think this could be Mr. Ramaphosa's last sonar? No, but I don't think so. Despite all the survey research, I think um, we will see him back in July with Sona number two. And I just wonder how he's going to approach that because I thought he would keep some of the long-term visionary stuff for Sona number two mm -hmm. and deal with short-term looking back kind of stuff for Sona 1.0. Um, <clears throat> the reason why I'm confident that he will present the second SONA as well. And despite all the survey research, when the ANC goes to an election, they have 30% of the vote in the back pocket, and that is rural South Africa. Um, they are still ANC orientated. But urban South Africa, which is 70%, is not. There, the challenge for the ANC is very dire. And of that 70%, the ANC can bank 5%. That gives them 35%. They can back the 5% because of grants and all these issues that they're providing. Because they're government, they can dish out the blankets. And that is at mm -hmm. least, val I value that at 5% of the vote. Now, to get another 10 to 12% in, uh, in the urban areas, 
is not going to be so difficult. So I see the ANC in this coming election, despite all the um, survey research and, and, and announcements, I see them close to 50%, maybe marginally below. Um, they may even be marginally above, but very close to 50%. I do not see them in the 40s or in the high 30s. I think that is opposition party figment of the imagination. And just one other thing uh, with regard to energy, that seemed to be a very much a speech geared towards clean energy. Are you, were you surprised? There was no mention of coal or nuclear energy. That is true. And I think that's one part of the sonar that I think we can give uh, President Ramaphosa credit. Because in the ANC, there was a huge debate about um, coal. Getting rid of coal, and coal is uh, dirty, and there were guys talking about clean coal and all of these kind of things. And then eventually, it seems to me, in this sonar, the one issue he did, he clarified the ANC's position, the government's position, and that is we're going for green energy. That is um, nitrogen, it is solar, rooftop, it is all of these kind of things. And then he mentioned specifically Mpumalanga. And I think the fact that he mentioned Mpumalanga was because most of our um, coal-fired stations are in Pumalanga, and the coal mines are there, and the big pollution are coming from there. So providing Pumalanga as part of our just energy um, a model, and we must not forget that that was a model that was very, very actively pushed by Mr. De Reiter that got fired and, and now is not mentioned in any good discussion but the Just Energy Transition, the Just Energy Initiative, I would give Andre de Reiter a few, um, a, a few marks on that one, even though he's not mentioned. Clearly, this was a speech geared to an election, wasn't it? I mean, to say, like, look how well we've done, and ooh, we're going to do really well in future, when we had all these obstacles why we couldn't get these things done. And do you agree? Yeah, well, I would, I would put it a little bit more... Um, uh, no answer. It was a state of the nation address like we see in America, the State of the Union, where we see the king delivering uh, the opening of parliament. But ours was disguised in electioneering. And you could see the electioneering, you could see the ANC, and they will, to, to reach the previous point I made, and that is to get to 50%, they will have to use all the resources to the, that is available to them. And of course, the state of the nation is one. The budget is the second one. Uh, the fact that um, the courts kept the EFF out of um, the process, and the ANC will definitely indicate that as a win, although we know it's a, it's a judicial uh, issue and the arguments were quite valid and it was done by um, a joint sitting of three judges so it was not a willy-nilly thing, but uh, the ANC will definitely use that also as a, as a win. And everything they're going to look at from now until we expect still the 22nd of May as the election date will all be focused towards the election. And of course, we know that the ANC has got the ability to muster all their, their resources in the last month before an election. That is why I am a little hesitant to give 
credibility to a lot of these um, uh, surveys that are saying the ANC has lost it. Can we, just as a last question, um, interpret his body language a bit. He seemed to quite enjoy himself, and every now and then was saying, oh, you love it, when he said things. Do you think the fact that, that the EFF wasn't there, he, he actually enjoyed himself a bit more as a politician? Yeah, and I think he, 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 was, he was instructed to be a little bit more engaging. Uh, at first, he, he seemed to me uh, a little bit on his nerves. Maybe it was because he was ill earlier in the week or something like that. And as he moved on, he got a little bit more confidence. And I think he made these jokes three times, saying, it seems to me you love it. And then, of course, we must remember that the ANC caucus, and that is the two houses, um, the um, uh, the legislative, the lower house, and the, um, the uh, National Council of Provinces were sitting jointly. And I think they decided in caucus, I'm guessing now, that we must cheer the president at every nook and cranny. Whatever he says, we must give him uh, an, uh, uh, an applause. And they did that. Okay, Professor Theofanta, thank you so much for speaking to us. My pleasure as always. Thank you.